0: Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 2. Glory to you, O Lord. And when the time came for their purification, this is uh, uh, Jesus and Mary. Jesus had just been born and presented for uh, circumcision. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. All right, let's look at the gospel reading. Uh, which should be there right on the page with you, uh, the Luke 2 reading. And specifically, we're going to be looking mostly at the conversation, or at the interaction between um, Simeon and Jesus and Mary and Joseph and thinking about what that means. And, and what I want to do today is, uh, this, is kind of, this is the first interaction that people have with Jesus uh, post-Christmas here in the narrative, like post his birth story in Luke chapter 2. And so... Um, what I want to do, it's, very, it's, a, it's a very, um, which you guys already saw this when you read this. It's, it's very, uh, complex is the wrong word, but there's, there's levels to this. There's, there's the glory of Jesus and the marvel that uh, Mary and Joseph have at Simeon's words. But there's also deep pain hidden in this text too. And what I want to do is I want to hopefully let that mixture of glory and suffering form and shape who we are as, as individuals and as the church going forward. And what I would like to do is, this being a December 31st, is to look forward to 2024. And I'm not really doing much vision casting here in this sermon, but to think about what our priorities are for this upcoming year. And, and what, is, what is it about this text that can shape the way we see ourselves as a church going forward so that we keep on pushing forward? Um, Three things I kind of want to look at here, and two of them rhyme and one of them doesn't. And I, I, there's a way that the second point could rhyme, but it would be so cheesy that it would just blow the whole sermon up. So I'm going to let it not rhyme, okay? Uh, and the, the two that did rhyme was unintentional. So uh, it's how the little uh, look behind the curtain, how the sausage gets made. So I'd like to look at what this text says about our story and about our community and then about our glory. Um, and this is going to be half sermon and half just sort of like uh, a chat between the two of us. Very one-sided chat, of course, but for, for right now. But hopefully this will uh, lead to conversations later. In fact, I would actually like it if we could keep talking about this, me less than, than you guys in adult Bible study after this. But uh, just kind of a chat of where, like, just, just to, to do the, the, the tweaks that people do around the end of the year and at the beginning of the new year but to do it kind of from the framework of the gospel, especially this story here. So first of all, our story. Our story, of course, is, and we looked at this this whole past summer, our story is the story of redemption, the story of God's plan to reclaim what was taken from him in the Garden of Eden and and the lengths to which he went to do that and is still doing that. This is what Christianity is. Christianity is not primarily a set of beliefs that you need to believe. There are beliefs that you have to believe, just like in any group, there's stuff that you have to sign up for. But that's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is a story of God active in his world through Jesus Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit to win his world back to himself. Note, I didn't start by saying to win you as an individual. That's a part of it. But the the, the fish that he wants to fry are much bigger than that. God wants to win his world back to himself. Now, Simeon has immersed himself in this story. How does Simeon know who Jesus is? Well, we're told he's life in the Spirit. We'll come to that in just a minute. The Holy Spirit has told him. But one way he knows this, and one way he makes sense of this, is by immersing himself in the unique story of the Bible, which stands over against all the other fake stories. So what story is this? Well, when he sees Jesus, you get this in verses 29 through 32. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. So I can, God, you can finally let me die because my eyes have seen your salvation and seeing this baby and holding this baby in my arms, my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. There were lots of stories on the street that Simeon could have bought into during his day. And again, I I, I realize I just talked about this a lot recently in Advent, So I want to hammer this, but there was the Pharisee story, which is, we are under the thumb of the Roman rulers. It's our fault because we have stopped obeying God's law. If we can show God that we are serious about doing what he commands us to do and loving him with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and strength, then God will act to rescue us. That was one story on offer. There's also the zealot story, which is God will blow up the Romans when we show the faith in him that it takes to get the army together and attack the Romans. That was one story on offer. There was the Sadducee story, which is God has gone over right now temporarily to the side of the Romans. The best thing for you to do is to respect the authorities and to remain calm and don't rebel against Rome and keep on coming to the temple. That was one story. None of the stories, there there were others too that we talked about a few weeks ago. None of the stories included this bit in here about a light for the Gentiles. All of the stories on offer, assumed that the Gentiles were the bad guys. They were the unclean ones. They were the uncircumcised. They were the pork eaters. They were the pagans. They were the ones who went to pagan uh, temples and worshiped to idols. They were the sexually unclean. We Jews are the pure ones. Whatever God does, it's gonna have to be to blow up the bad people and to vindicate the good people. Simeon, though, gets it. Now, why does he get it? Well, Simeon gets it because he's been reading the story. He's actually been reading the story. He's not taking his cues from the street. He's not taking his cues from Twitter and from news channels. He's actually been reading his Bible. So for instance, in four super, super important texts in Isaiah 40 through 66, we call them the four servant songs because Isaiah gives us an image of this servant character. Isaiah doesn't know who it is. We find out who it is when the New Testament starts saying, hey, this Jesus guy is the servant of Isaiah 40 to 66. In separate places, and I'll give you uh, some quotes from two of them, one is from the first servant song in Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, I have called, this is God, Yahweh, talking to the servant who he's calling. I am the Lord, I've called you in righteousness, this is, this is Jesus, I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, a light for the Gentiles. Jesus is coming to redeem the Gentiles. When the servant comes, he is going to come to help save the Gentiles, right? That was not the story told on the street. It wasn't politically expedient to talk about saving the Gentiles because the Gentiles were the great big bugaboo that got everybody scared so that they would follow one of the parties, become a Pharisee or become a Sadducee or become an Essene or become a Zealot or any of the other smaller parties. It wasn't like, but Simeon gets it. Third servant Psalm, Isaiah 49, I mean, second servant Psalm. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant? This is, again, this is Yahweh talking to to the servant. It's going to be, find out it's going to be, in in 600 years, it's going to be Jesus. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? Of course the servant is going to bring back the preserved of Israel. That's what the, the, The Messiah has come to rescue Israel, but that's too light a thing, Yahweh says. I will also make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And what Simeon has done is he's read this and he said, this is who the Messiah is going to be. I'm not going to listen to all the static. I'm going to cut through all the voices that are trying to control me with their words and I'm going to live in the story. I'm going to live in the story. And he gets himself in the story and it gives him clarity of thought so much so that he can do something that doesn't seem very clear at all to the people who aren't in the story, which is this little baby's the answer this little baby's the answer. You only get that if you're in the story. So let me give you once more. I did this at the beginning of the summer, I'll do it again. Stop listening to the fake stories. The politicians are trying to control you with their stories about how they can fix everything. You just have to hate the bad guys and believe that they're the good guys. Some of you love love stories, romantic stories. And those are promising you that you will finally be happy if you can get romance, if you can get true love. Stop listening to the static. It's not true. By the way, you should vote. Again, I, my, my, my caveat, you should vote. You should be invested in the politics of your town and your county, your state, your country. Romantic love is great. If God has given you that calling and that vocation, buy into it. But don't believe the lie that it can Messiah you, that it can save you, that it can be your servant. Talking to a friend this week and she said, I can't go to the mall. or I don't like to go to the mall. And we said, oh, you know, I get it. Malls are kind of lame and overpriced and whatnot. Every once in a while, it's fun to walk through the mall and look at the weirdo shopping at the mall. And she said, I can't walk through the mall because it just stirs up discontent. Like every store I see, I think I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that. This is what advertisers do. This is what marketers do is they stir up discontent. Do you want to go to the mall? It's a weird sermon point. Go ahead and go to the mall. That's fine, but don't believe the static. Don't believe the lies. Don't believe the fake story that if you just had a little bit more, you would be happier. If your house was in a better neighborhood, you'd be happier. If you could get that dress at whatever it is, then you'd be happier. If you had that game system, you'd be happier. If you had that car, don't don't believe the lies. But the only way you can do that is to stop listening to those stories. Because the stories are intentionally designed by ad people and marketing people and politicians And TV show producers and musicians, those stories are intentionally written to pull you in and to get you to believe in those stories in order to control you. And the only way to get out of that is to turn it off. Turn it off. Now, some of you can have it on and it doesn't really affect you. I don't, this is not my issue. I'm not not bragging. It doesn't bother me to go to the mall. I don't ever, hardly ever, there's a few things. I don't hardly ever look at stuff and think, man, I wish I had that stuff. That's not my problem. Food is my problem. That is one of my problems. You have to turn off. Whatever the story is that's telling you, here's the fake Messiah that can make your life better, please, for God's sake, and I mean that quite literally, turn it off and get into the Bible. Okay, how can we do this? So, soak in the one true story. I'm gonna, um, uh, well, I'll say a couple things. One of the things is, is our church depends upon this. That's the first thing. Our church absolutely depends on you being Bible story people. You know, we've lost members this past year, because people who were here with us, now, I'll keep on going, then I'll qualify. A second. People who are here with us believe the culture stories about individualism and the sexual revolution being the most important stories. And when the gospel challenged those stories, that you are not your own, you are bought with a price. Your individualism is not the most important thing. Sex is not going to make you happy. Sexual liberty and sexual freedom. Sex is a wonderful gift of God, but it's a horrible master. People left. They couldn't handle it. Now, I'll say this. Some people left because I'm a bad pastor. Some people left because I made, like, discipling mistakes, and, and, and I, I was careless. And for that, I asked them to forgive me, and I asked you guys to forgive me, too. But some people left because the gospel challenged their idols. They had lived in the story of individualism being the, that's the the great fundamental value that we should all hold, is we all have individual rights. And when the gospel challenged that, they got angry and left. The gospel of sexual revolution got challenged by the gospel of God alone being worthy of worship, and they left over that. The only way you can avoid that is you have to be in this story, because believe me, there's lots of voices out there that want you to believe in yourself as an individual. There's lots of voices out there that want you to believe that your sexuality is yours and you can use it however you want it. It's not anybody's business. And God, if there is a God, would pat you on the back and say, go for it. And that's just not the case. But the only way you get there, and I'm not, I'm not, I realize that, I'll say it this way. If that makes me sound like a kind of a stiff, kind of a little bit like, oh, I can't believe you just said that. It's because you we've all bought into the sexual revolution lie. Like for somebody to say, your sexuality is not your own, it belongs to God and it belongs to your spouse. That's so challenging because we've started to believe the story, the bad story. Get in the good story, turn off the fake story. Can I get, I told you this was like half sermon, half just kind of family talk. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to do this today is, oh, by the way, there's a lot of people missing today, which is normal, like during the Christmas holidays, we have a youngish church, and so people bolt and they go home and see their families. Like if you talk to people in the church, encourage them, and I'll try to remember to do this too, encourage them to cycle back and listen to this sermon. Because I, I, this is some, some of the stuff, the stuff I, I want us to all be thinking about uh, this year. Okay, so tomorrow's January 1st. Lots of you are, maybe even now as I'm speaking, thinking like, okay, so I'm going to get in the story this year. Can I offer this to you? I'm not going to lay this on you as law, but I'm going to offer this to you. If you have some sort of plan, which if you're like me, you need a plan. If you have some sort of plan on being in the story this year, go for it. If you don't, I have a bunch that I've made up that I am willing to give you free of charge. And I will also give you, included in that price, I will, I will give you like me walking through difficult text with you whenever you want. Right? Now, so I have a Bible reading plan. It's a spreadsheet. I'll send it to you. I'll describe it to you. Let me tell you what's in it. This will involve about half an hour a day. If I don't have half an hour. You do have half an hour. Just say I'm not going to look at Facebook for 15 minutes, and I'm not going uh, to look at Twitter for 15 minutes, and I'm not going to watch my favorite TV show, or I'm going to spend the 15 minutes on the way to work listening to an audio version of the Bible. Just take a half hour. In this plan, uh, I feel like I'm selling something now. In this plan... Uh, you'll read through the Psalms six times in a year. So you'll go through all the Psalms once every two months. You'll read through the New Testament twice, once from January to, to uh, uh, June is the sixth month, right? And then the, uh, once again from July to December and read through the Old Testament once. So you will read through the Bible once, the New Testament twice, and the Psalms six times. Included in that is a plan on how to pray, how to read the Bible as a conversation with God. To read the Psalms to talk back to God about them, uh, to read the Old Testament, to talk back, back, back to God. There's a plan and a description on how to do that. If you are interested, let me know. I will shoot you that today because tomorrow's January 1st and uh, you can jump on it. Do not wear this as a yoke around your neck. If you miss a day, for whatever reason, don't, don't, don't be scared off. Just jump back into it. And if you end up being behind at the end of the year, don't be scared off. Just jump back into it. The point isn't to like, check off boxes. The point is just to be in the story, to be in the story, to start filling up on this story, okay? That's the first thing. That's our story. Um, Second thing is this, our community. Now, it's interesting, is it not, that both Simeon and Anna are in the temple. Verse 27, Simeon is described as being in the temple. Verse 37, Anna is described as always being in the temple. Jesus doesn't meet us. The Holy Spirit doesn't meet us. I'm not primarily in private. Again, if this is troubling to you, it's because that American God of individualism that I just described, which drove some people from us, it's actually seeped its way down into all of our hearts. We're all Americans in here. It's seeped, it seeped down into our hearts. So that the notion that, like, I have to depend on other people for my walk with Jesus is super foreign. Like, no, it should just be about me and God, right? No. That's actually a bad way to be close to God. If it's just you privately and God, it's not going to work out. You were not designed like that. I'm talking to, to, to you introverts like me as well as you extroverts. If Simeon and Anna are home thinking, yeah, God's gonna send to salvation, they don't get the experience of meeting Jesus and having the Holy Spirit tell them, this is it, because Jesus meets us in public. Jesus meets us in public. This is the, Paul talks about it this way. The body of Christ is the body of Christ. This happens in public. So, community. Let's give you a a couple of quick um, um, commercials here. One is for community group. Being in some form of community group is going to be essential this year. I know you're busy. I know there's a lot going on. At some point, you have to say no to the culture. And that culture might be your job. It might be your kid's Lutheran school. It might be your church even. You can say no, we're not doing this tonight. We're gonna to go be in community and pray with people and live life with people and gather around God's word. And you're just gonna to have to do it. You just have to do it. We have community groups here. That's one way to do it. There are other ways to do it too. It doesn't have to be an official community group. We have a ladies' Bible study on Saturday and a men's Bible study on Wednesday morning. For you teenagers, there's a youth group. Don't cut yourself off from community. Jesus meets us in public. That's my first commercial. My second commercial, I told you this was more of like a talk than like a sermon. A it's very law-based, especially the first part of this. My second commercial is this. I'm going to try to encourage everybody. I know, I know I'm singing to the choir right now. To, to make being in worship a priority this year. And, and I'll just be frank with you again. I had this conversation a year or so ago. The live stream has been wonderful. Uh, Larry's worked really hard on it. It's top-notch. Some of you have come to this church because... You took the gateway drug of the live stream first, and then you started coming here. But for some of us, the live stream has become a crutch. It's become a way to not be in worship. It's become easy just to say, oh, I'll just stay home and watch it on TV. I'm not telling you not to. I'm really glad for it. I, there's, we're not going to get rid of it because it is a great outreach. Um, but it's not the same as being here in community. It, it just isn't. And I'll give you a couple reasons why. One, of course, is, it's a very Lutheran thing to say here, is that if if Jesus himself gives all of himself to us in Holy Communion, you don't get that on the live stream. When I was a Baptist, I would have been cool with that. I would have been like, oh, they're having communion now. They're thinking about Jesus, and they get the grape juice and the bread. I can think about Jesus here at home, too, and we're both getting the same thing. But you're not getting the same thing, because thinking about Jesus is differently than Jesus giving himself to you in which you should be thinking about Jesus, but it's, it's more than that. It's a personal interaction with all of who Jesus is for all of who we are. And please come to church because you're missing out on communion. And it's super important. I probably need to preach on communion uh, uh, sometime this year to emphasize biblically how important it is for our walk with Christ, but don't miss out on that. Second one is this. It, it, it's a priority that sends a message to the rest of us. It teaches me when you're here. It teaches your kids and your family and your friends when you're here. It also teaches them when you're not here. If there are things that you say, we go to church unless we have this. What you're telling your kids and your friends and your family and me is, there's, again, it's is very law, law heavy, I know. There's something more important than church. Church is great, but what we get out of church, we can just put off until later. What's really important is we have to do this. We have to do this, whatever it is. It could just be just sleeping in. Church is great if we get up in time. If not, we'll just watch on the live stream. You send a message, you train yourself. It's what the, the ancient philosophers talk about, virtue. You train yourself in these activities. You train your kids in these activities. And it enforces in them what values are. Despite You can say, Jesus is the most important, all you want. But if you don't act like Jesus is the most important, then your kids aren't going to say Jesus is the most important, no matter how hard you say it to them. That's just a fact. I've never done this before, but I'm going to quote from um, a satire site. This is, uh, uh, if you're not familiar with things like the onion and the Babylon Bee, this sounds like a news article. It's not real. It's just made up, but it's for the purpose of satire. But this came out uh, several years ago, and I was a pastor at a church where one of the other pastors, when he would go around on Sundays to visit people who hadn't been coming to church, he would print little copies of this out and leave this in their door. And I I will read it now for your edification. But trying to emphasize what I'm saying, but in a sarcastic way. I I hesitate to do that because I don't want my tone to always be sarcastic. But but it it does make an interesting point. Uh, Here here it goes. Uh, This is from uh, 2016. Fake news. This is not real news. This is a fake news story. Uh, local Local father, Trevor Mickelson, 48, and his wife, Carrie, 45, are reeling after discovering that after 12 years of steadily taking their daughter Janie to church, every Sunday they didn't have a more pressing sporting commitment, which was at least once every three months. She no longer demonstrates the strong quarterly commitment to the faith they raised her with now that she's college-aged. So they, took, they, they, they take her daughter to church whenever there's not a sporting event, and now they're stunned that she doesn't keep on going to church after she goes back to college. Tre, tre, these are fake people, by the way, again. Trevor Mickelson was simply stunned at the revelation He says, I just don't understand it. Almost every single time there was a rained out game or a break between school and club team seasons, we had Janie in church. It was at least once per quarter. And aside from one tournament in 2011, we never missed an Easter. It was obviously a priority in our family. I just don't get where her her spiritual apathy is coming from. You know, the more I think about it, the more this illustrates how the church just keeps failing this generation, lamented Trevor, citing a recently Googled study by Barna or someone. The Mickelsons further noted plans to have a chat with the pastor of their church after their young son Robert's soccer season calms down a bit. I mean, it's, it's, it's supposed to be ridiculous, but it's honestly not ridiculous because I've knocked on those doors on Sunday afternoon and have people said that to me. Hey, it's volleyball season or it's soccer season or I'm going hunting or, you know, we, 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 we're just going to be gone a while. And just say it to me like, well, that's, yeah, I just don't come to church. I won't be coming to church for a while. And you get it. God gets it. There's sports, all right? There's family events. We live in that, and what we do is we're training ourselves and the people close to us and the people who depend upon us that there's something more important. than Even if you say God is the most important, we train ourselves that that's not the case. Make, again, law heavy, make the commitment to be in congregational life regularly this year. Secondly, thirdly, I'm sorry, this is thirdly. If you're not here, I'm missing out on something of the Holy Spirit that he has designed for me. If Paul's right about the body of Christ, God has put each one of us here in this church with unique spiritual gifts to love and serve the community. And if you decide, I won't be, I, I just don't need to be there. What you're saying is, or not what you're saying, but what you're doing to me is you're depriving me of whatever it is that God has gifted you to serve me. So we don't think about church as a body of Christ. We think of it as a lecture or, you know, a spiritual gathering. But I depend upon you, and you depend upon me, and all of us depend upon each other. And when we say, I don't need to be there, what we're saying is, is I don't have value to this group. God has not gifted me to benefit this group. Don't leave your gifts at home. Don't be the superhero who doesn't show up at the fight because, well, you know, there's a volleyball match this morning. Like, I desperately need you. If you've uh, you've ever lost a, a close friend or a loved one, or if you've been in a friend group where somebody's moved away, you know when that person moves away or even just simply like if you're getting together with a group of friends and you guys always get together and then one of them can't show up that night. It's not just as simple as well, oh, that person got subtracted. We'll just keep on moving on. It actually creates a ripple of holes. It affects everybody else. And that's what happens when you're not here. And again, I, I want to emphasize again, I know this is law heavy and I know that there are times when people miss church for good reasons. I'm not trying to put a yoke upon you. All I'm trying to say is, is that I need you And you need Jesus. That's all I'm trying to say. Don't cut yourself off from that. Community is important. Simeon doesn't get this experience if he doesn't show up at temple. Last thing, and then uh, we'll move on to the third point. At some point this year, we're going to probably start a discussion about expanding this facility, this sanctuary, and building on educational space and gathering space. The most important thing about that process is that you be here for it. I know that your prayers are important, and I know that money is important, but your presence is important. The building has absolutely zero value if it's not serving the needs of us as a family in the community. The live stream is great, but we need you here. Make a commitment this year. Okay, finally, our glory, and then we'll, um, uh, we'll be done. <clears throat> uh, Simeon, when he's referring to Isaiah, says in verse 32 that Jesus is going to be, Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. That word glory is a great word. It means, literally, it means weight, heaviness, something that's big, something that gives ballast to, something that gives purpose and meaning. The thing that gives your existence weight, the thing that makes your identity your identity is your glory. That's your glory. Your glory might be the business you started. Your glory might be your good looks. Your glory could be your grandkids. Your glory could be your money. It could be any number of things that are out there, all of them great things. But if all of those great things are your glory, then you're in idolatry. The one true glory, the only thing that has weight enough to be the ballast to your ship is Jesus of Nazareth. It's the only thing that that can be your identity and you walk out of it unscathed mentally, psychologically, socially, emotionally, physically. It's got to be Jesus. If it's anything else, it will destroy you. It will sink you. Nothing else can live up to this. Not that girlfriend, not that job, not your status with your friend group, not your good reputation, not your religiosity, not your sermons. Nothing can give me the way that will get me through this life except for Jesus. But he can do it. He is look at the words that are used to describe him here. He's he's a salvation in verse 30. He rescues those who are lost. He rescues those who are in danger. He is a light for revelation. He is one. I talked about this last Sunday. Jesus is true knowledge. He's He's true wisdom. He's the true meaning behind the entire universe, and he's the glory of your people Israel. He's the heft and weight that gives us identity. Jesus can do all this. Jesus is doing all this, this is good news. This is why Mary and Joseph marvel at what Simeon says. However, it's not just glory. The glory of the kingdom always comes through the pain of the cross. The glory of the kingdom always comes through the pain of the cross. Let's spend a few quick minutes looking at verse 34 and then we'll be done. It's a very kind of interesting verse. We can unpack it and see about what it means. We don't have time to talk about all of it. Simeon blessed, uh, Simeon blessed uh, the family and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And the sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Okay, what does this verse mean? He says that um, Jesus is uh, Jesus has been appointed for a sign that is opposed. Let's talk about that one first. Jesus has been appointed for a sign that is opposed. A sign that is opposed. Jesus is not here to make you feel good. Jesus is not here to be the model of love for the world. If our Christianity is about meeting the world's needs somehow, or figuring out what they need and matching up with it, then we're missing the point of the gospel. Because Jesus comes as a sign that opposes. And when Jesus is faithfully proclaimed and lived out by us, there will be tension. There will be conflict. I don't don't mean fighting. Sometimes I get that there is. Yeah, you guys heard this week about the Christians in Nigeria that lost their lives. But there will be, the world does not like Jesus. More on that in just a second. There's a, um, a book that I've been reading again lately by a couple of guys named Stanley Hauerwas and William Willimon, who they both teach at Duke. The name of the book is called Resident Aliens. And the point of the book is that the church is a colony and the church is effectively a colony when it stands as a sign and a witness that the way the world does things is screwed up and broken. And our job is not to say, well, how can we make you feel better now that you're screwed up and broken? Our job is to say there's a different way. There's a whole other different cosmos. There's a whole different glory on offer that you don't have. And I'm just going to read it a little bit to you. What they say, this is right in the middle of the book. The world needs the church because without the church, the world does not know who it is. What does that mean? Without the church, the world doesn't know who it is. The unbelieving world, fallen and broken, is... Fundamentally, the target of Jesus' redemption. But if the church isn't the church, the world will never know that. If the church is just here to say, hey, we're here to make you guys feel better, we're here to like love on you, oh, there's nothing wrong with these. If that's the church's mission, the world will never know that, it's, that it needs redemption. They, they go on. The only, the only way for the world to know that it is being redeemed is for the church to point to the Redeemer by being a redeemed people. The way for the world to know that it needs redeeming, that it's broken and fallen, is for the church to enable the world to strike hard against something which is an alternative to what the world offers. i read that. It's a good line. The way for the world to know that it needs redeeming, that it's broken and fallen, is for the church to enable the world to strike hard against something, which is an alternative to what the world offers. If if there's a whole town full of people who have stage three cancer, and there's a doctor who knows it, but just says, hey, can I give you aspirin? That doctor's not doing their job, although that doctor will be appreciated, especially if it's stronger than aspirin. If there's a doctor who says, stop, you need to stop what you're doing, and I need to cut you open today. I need to brutalize your body to get that cancer out. And the recovery is going to be horrible. That doctor will be disliked, but successful. That doctor will be feared, but eventually loved. And what the church has done, the church has turned itself into the pastors out of aspirin instead of the great OR, which is what it's designed to be. And it's no fun. It's no fun being a sign opposed, but that's what the gospel does. It says y'all are screwed up, and the only way to fix it is to die. We're on that in a second. Unfortunately, an accommodation. I'm, I'm, re- I'm reading again from Howard Watson Willimon. Unfortunately, an accommodationist church, a church that wants to kind of like go along with the culture and just kind of uh, piggyback along with the culture's values and offer little resources of, of you know hope and help along the way. An accommodationist church so intent on running errands for the world is giving the world less and less in which to disbelieve. If we don't give the world anything that they can say, I don't believe in that and it's different than me, then we're not doing our job. We're not doing our job. Atheism slips into the church where God really doesn't matter. As we go about building bigger and better congregations, we call this church administration. Confirming people's self-esteem, we call this worship Enabling people to adjust to their anxieties brought on by their materialism, we call this pastoral care, and making Christ a worthy subject for poetic reflection, we call this preaching. At every, at every turn, the church must ask itself, though, does it really make any difference in our life together, in what we do, that in Jesus Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself? Does it make any difference at all? If it doesn't, if, it does, if we're just another self-help organization, then we could just shut down now. It's kind of a waste of time. God's called us to be a sign opposed. The Messiah is a sign opposed. That's for the unbelievers. Now for the believers. A sword will pierce through your own soul also, Simeon says to Mary. He warns Mary right off the bat, this beautiful thing that you're marveling at right now, that the creator God of the universe, bigger than everything that ever, anything that ever existed, infinitely large, has decided to live inside your belly for nine months and now is being held in your arms, and is dependent upon you for food and for for being cleaned, that marvel is going to be shot through with pain. It's going to be a sword that pierces your heart also. And we, like Mary, have to embrace this as well, is that it's going to hurt us to be gospel people. The gospel causes distress to the church because the emotional experience of the church, when it fully embraces The real Jesus will be like that of a mother watching her child be disregarded, mistreated, and killed. Some of you've watched your kids be disregarded. Everybody's in here. I know my parents have have watched their kids fail and have to sit there and watch them fail at something and be heartbroken about it. Some of you've watched your kids be mistreated by others. You've watched your kids get bullied. Some of you have watched your kids die. That experience is what the experience of being a Christian is like, Luke says. And if we try to avoid that experience, what we're doing is we're trying to avoid the cross. We want the glory without the cross. We want resurrection without death. We want salvation without sacrifice. And that's no Christianity at all. That's a dead church. What we will inevitably turn to is either on one hand, frustration because we're not successful, or on the other hand, just sort of faking along. We're all happy here. Everything's great here. Let's keep on passing out aspirin to, the, to, to Glen Carbon. And that's not what we're called to be. John 15, 18 through 20, Jesus says this. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were not of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, that I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Jesus tells us right off the bat this is not personal. The world doesn't hate you because there's something about you that they hate. They hate you because they hate me. There's only one way to avoid that, and that's to hide Jesus, to hide the thing that they hate. You can do that, lots of churches do this. I've done this before, I do this all the time. Who who am I kidding, I've done this before. I do this all the time. We're gonna have to decide, are we gonna be the kind of church that's happy and hopeful and always successful and really great at passing out aspirin? Are we going to allow the sword to pierce our own hearts also? Are we going to join Jesus in his suffering? Are we going to embrace the cross and thus embrace true resurrection? Not eased pain, but resurrection. Finally. Before, before we do that, let me just, I want to make this clear. I'm not saying, because some, some, some of you, your personality is like this. Yes. I don't mind, like, I don't mind the pain. I'll confront everybody. I don't mind if people hate me. I'm not like that. Like, I'm more, I'm more of like a high Jesus kind of person. I'm not saying to make yourself obnoxious. There's two things that we need to get straight here. One is that Jesus says, if you love Jesus, the world will hate you. The other thing that we need to say here, though, is something that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul says, give no offense, give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. So Jesus says the world's gonna hate you. Paul says, I don't offend anybody because I want everybody to be pleased with me. Those two things are both possible. Here's how it works. If the world hates the church because the church is obnoxious, which the church frequently is, that's wrong. If the church is just giving offense, that's wrong. But if the world hates us when we love them because of Jesus, that's gonna be par for the course. One quick little analogy to to hang this thought on. It's like a parent with a two-year-old child, right? Two-year-old kids say lots of nasty things to parents. And parents, if they're good, when the parents try and tell them what to do. Parents, if they're good parents, know that it's my job to make this kid unhappy right now. Like the kid wants to play in the street. It's my job to say, no, you can't. And the kid says, the kid's gonna get angry at me. And it's my job to embrace it. Am I intentionally trying to offend my kid or make my kid angry? No, don't do that. That would be wrong. It's wrong to like attack your kids. It's wrong to like verbally abuse them. But part of being a parent is to say, I love you. I'm on your side. I know you're angry at me, but I'm saying this for your own benefit. That's what we as Christians are called to do for the culture. We love you. We're on your side. We're rooting like heck for you. We know that what we're saying is hurt. We know that It's hurtful. We know that you reject it. We don't say it out of anger. We say it because this is the gospel. Jesus died for you, and your only path to wholeness is at the foot of the cross. Okay, last thing and then we'll be done. I know this is a little bit long. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, he tells him. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. That word rising is interesting. It's, it's the exact same word that's used for resurrection throughout the rest of the gospel, of Luke, being raised from the dead. People are gonna fall, people are gonna rise. I, I said this earlier in the sermon. Let me unpack it for 30 seconds now. The problem is not that Israel needs some sort of political comfort. Rome's there. How can we make how can we get rid of Rome? What's the best way? How can I counsel you so that maybe you need to make a move? Maybe you need to go with the Essenes out to the desert. And then you can forget about Rome for a while. Or it's not, it's not, the, it's not Israel's job. It's not the church. It's not Jesus' job to say to Israel, well, how can we help you to cope with this? You can't change the circumstances. But how can you better live with these bad circumstances? Then you'll be happy. I'm not saying that those things are inappropriate. They're totally fine. But they're not the gospel. We all need counseling from time to time, but that's not the gospel. What Israel needs to do is fall and rise. America doesn't need tinkering with. There's not a list of four things that we need to do to make America a great country. America needs to die and rise from the dead. My problem is not that Aaron Miller needs a checklist of two or three things to work on, and then I'm gonna be great. Aaron Miller needs to die so that he can be raised from the dead. See, my problem is stage four cancer. It's not a headache, it's a brain tumor, terminal brain tumor. My problem is not that my stomach hurts, I just need to eat better. My problem is that I have stage four colon cancer, and unless somebody puts me under the knife and cuts me open, unless somebody just about literally kills me, I will not be able to be raised from the dead. I need to fall and rise. That's where Jesus comes in. Jesus is not here to tell Israel how to best cope with Rome or how to best get out from underneath Rome's shadow. Jesus is here to be the one who falls and rises, to be the one who sums all of Israel up in himself so that he can literally be killed by the bad guys so that he can rise from the dead to new life because our problems are much bigger than we imagine, but our hope is much greater than our problems allow us to believe it could be. See, if all you think is the problem is that we just need some adjusting, Glen Carbon needs to be a little bit nicer place to live, there's no gospel for that. Just go try harder. You know, the Books A Million has stacks and stacks of like, self-help books. Go read one of those. Go get counseling. Our problem is we need to be killed and rise from the dead. That's what Jesus is here to do. He is the one who falls and rises. He is the one who came to live the life that we should have lived and to die the death that we should have died so that he can rise to the new life that he freely gives us in himself. This year, let's resolve that we're going to live with Jesus at the center we're not going to be scared to be Jesus' people. We're not going to be scared to go under the knife ourselves personally. To embrace who we are as, comp- not, we are not the right ones. The Lutherans are not the correct ones. And it's our job to tell everybody else The Lutherans are the ones, hopefully, all Christians, are the ones who recognize that we are dead people walking. This is a dead church walking. The only way that this church has life is that it's artificial. It's from outside of us. It's the power of the Holy Spirit, not from us. It's the power of the risen Christ. Embrace that this year. Part of that's going to be being in the story. Part of that's going to be being in community. Part of that's going to be embracing the calling to be the sign opposed that Jesus has given to us. But when we do that, the power of the resurrection is going to explode through us this year and great things are going to happen. That's so all I can do is promise you that and then invite you to the table so you can experience another dimension, another facet of that as Jesus gives himself to us, body and soul. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving yourself to us. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Help us to wake up and realize that we're in him. We pray this in his name, amen.